Okay. Right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the first episode of Broken Laws Podcast for uh, January 2024. And um, today we have with us something I've been promising to do for a while on the podcast, which is bring in the people who genuinely have knowledge and the understanding of um, sports, sports science and human physiology so that the people who are listening to us can gain a little bit more value and understanding and insight from the podcast rather than me and Aaron just yakking on about rowing. So today we have uh, Professor Andy Jones from the University of Exeter. And Andy, I believe that you your research has taken the direction of looking at, I mean, you're, you're the principal guy in the UK of looking at the effect of beetroot juice on human athletic performance or the compounds within beetroot juice. And um, maybe you could just like tell us a, a little bit about who you are and how you've come to that kind of research direction yeah be happy to so uh, well thanks for having me on Pleasure. um so yeah i'm a professor of applied physiology um at the university of exeter i've been here i think nearly 20 years now but you know my background actually i used to be fairly good uh, distance runner as a junior like a lot of people who go into sports science we do it through you know an interest in enhancing our own performance i think in the first place and I did sports science, PhD in, in exercise physiology, postdoc in respiratory physiology, and then, you know, just kind of um, senior lecturer, associate reader, full professor, that kind of stuff. And my research focus has always been on um, endurance, really, well, you know, aerobic exercise and sports performance. And I'm interested in the mechanisms by which we generate energy to be able to do exercise and the causes of fatigue, but I've also, I think perhaps because of my athletic background, I'm kind of always concerned about how we translate the information that we gather in the lab into actually addressing real-world problems with uh, with athletes in the field. So kind of always motivated by that. Um, as I say, most of my focus has been on physiology, so it's all of this stuff related to oxidative metabolism, thing, anything to do with VO2 really, whether it's VO2 max, uh, submaximal oxygen uptake, which is efficiency or economy, higher sustainable oxygen uptake, which is your lactate threshold and your maximal steady state, VO2 kinetics, how quickly you can turn on the oxygen transport and utilization system when you start to exercise, um, you know, all, all of that. And um, that's really why I kind of got into the nutritional aspects of it as well, because I found out there was an early study which showed that if you take dietary nitrate, like that first study didn't use beetroot juice, they used a pharmacological, you know, sodium um, sodium nitrate, and when they fed sodium nitrate to people, the oxygen cost of exercising submaximally on a bike was less, and that's really really surprising because if you can make yourself more efficient, whether that's through long-term training or through an acute dietary intervention, that should improve your performance. So, um, so that's what kind of got me interested in the beetroot story because it turns out that this substance nitrate occurs naturally in lots of different um, you know, products, if you like, or uh, foodstuffs, green leafy vegetables in particular, and also beetroot. And you can obviously turn the beetroot into a juice. It's very easy to consume, and you can get a you know, reasonable high dose of nitrate, which indeed we went on to show does reduce your oxygen uptake, make your muscles a bit more efficient, and can, at least in some circumstances, improve your performance. Um, yeah, so that's how I got round to this. <laughs> it seems like a surprising thing. People, how do you get into beetroot? So, yeah, that's the, that's the story. So, so how long has that? So, w when w when was this first observed? Uh, the, the study that I refer to there was in two thousand and seven. Um, so, you know, we've obviously appreciated that nitric oxide, which is kind of going a bit further downstream. Nitric oxide is an important, you know, signaling molecule that's involved in a different range of different um, processes in the body. And we at one time thought that the only way to produce that was through something called an amino acid called L-arginine and quite a complex biochemical process um, involving an enzyme called nitric oxide synthase. But more recently, maybe 20 or so years ago, it was recognized that there was other, this other pathway 
where the nitrate that you either produce naturally or you can ingest gets converted first in your body to nitrite, and that's actually bioactive, but the, the nitrite can be reduced further very simply to nitric oxide. So it's, a, it's an alternative and complementary pathway to increase nitric oxide in the body. And you know, nitric oxide is important in, in older age um, and in cardiovascular health, because if you are unable to produce as much nitric oxide, your blood pressure goes a bit higher. So there's all sorts of health applications to this. Um, but it turns out that nitric oxide is also very heavily involved in you know, cellular metabolic processes. Um, and possibly is 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 even more important during during exercise where the oxygen levels and the muscle might be a bit lower. So this nitrate nitrite nitric oxide pathway, you know, I think is has become of real interest to um, to exercise scientists. As I say, the the first time first study that I saw that w which captured my interest was in um, two thousand and seven and then two thousand and nine, and then we pounced on that pretty much straight away because you know. I felt that if this, you know, this really had the potential to um, to make a big difference, not just to health, but also to athletic performance. Okay. Um, and, and and so it doesn't start with beetroot because I mean, I think I think I came across this um, just entirely anecdotally. I was I was working in scientific sales and I was bouncing around uh, a university, probably around 2000, I, I think it was around about 2008, 2009. So it's a long time ago. I'm, I can't be certain. But I remember speaking to someone outside this heart institute, somewhere in kind of like central North London zone 2-ish or something. And he was talking about heart patient, hypertensive patients and the effect of eating beetroot the next day. And he said it was, it, it's almost as good as any drug we can give them. Mm. And it's like completely no side effects as yeah. far as we can work out. You, you get red wheat or something because of the yeah. anthocyanins. And... I immediately at that point, I immediately thought, oh, could this make me go faster? Because I, I was I was a much more competitive rower than I am today at that time. But it, it, it is that is that just like it, I mean, something that lowers your blood pressure? Is that something that naturally would you think that sort of like a lot of the stimulants and stuff, they almost raise your blood pressure? Why is it that lowering something that lowers blood pressure automatically almost makes us think, oh, would that make us go faster? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, were you at the William Harvey Heart Institute or something like that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, that, that rings a very, very strong you know, bell. You know, like Andy Webb. I mean, obviously, they're more interested in cardiovascular disease there. So, yeah. so they were definitely, in fact, there's a guy called. Um, Ben Benjamin, his actual name is Nigel Benjamin, but they call him Ben. And he was associated with that institute, but also was an honorary professor at Exeter. So he kind of joined up. Well, I didn't, you know, didn't get the idea from him, but it was a, it was fortuitous. <laughs> when we pounced on this nitrate and exercise idea, he was there to kind of help draw all of this together. Um, now, I think you know, the fact... <laughs> The fact that nitric, that when you you take the nitrate in the beetroot juice or whatever else, ends up as nitric oxide, and that the nitric oxide is well known as a vasodilator, and so if you get general vasodilation, you'll get a lowering of blood pressure. But obviously, what it's also doing is redirecting blood flow. You know, so you can have local vasodilation. So, the 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 explanation that a lot of people give for why nitrate may be effective may be ergogenic in sport is that it increases blood flow to your muscles now it, it might do that but actually it, it doesn't have to do that because in fact as i've mentioned you know the, the oxygen uptake during exercise is lower and it's the muscle that places you know dictates to the cardiovascular system how much blood flow it needs so if the demand is a bit lower actually the blood flow doesn't doesn't need to be any higher in fact it does tend to be a bit lower as well so this effect on exercise performance is not related 
to any effect on blood pressure or any effect on blood flow. In fact, there's actually nitric oxide is such a ubiquitous molecule that it's doing a wide variety of other things in different places. So there's some suggestion, for example, that it can influence mitochondrial function, mitochondrial respiration, but it can also influence the contractile elements within the muscle, the actin and myosin, the sliding filament theory. You know. So it might be that you require less ATP to perform a contraction when you've got abundant nitric oxide present compared to when you haven't. So it's, it's quite complicated, but actually the blood pressure effect, I don't think we should consider as being connected necessarily to the exercise effect. What we do know is that nitric oxide is involved in both processes and that one way to generate more nitric oxide is to consume more nitrate in your diet. And one way to do that is to take beetroot juice because there's a lot of nitrate in beetroot juice. Fair enough. Um... So, okay, that, that that kind of you you, men, you mentioned the, the the first experiment with the kind of with the sodium nitrate. Um, has this kind of like translated well? Because there's often like experiments that are done in untrained populations and kind of people who haven't done a lot of endurance training, and then there's this kind of like translation does this actually still work in people who are actually really, really good at exerting themselves for a long time really hard? I mean, has that translation happened well? Well, yes and no. So, I mean, there's been a lot of studies done. So, you know, the, the paper that I refer to was published in a bit of an obscure, it's a, it's a very strong physiology journal. It's called Acta Physiologica. But it's not um, it's not the sort of place where sports physiologists or coaches would kind of pick up the information. So, you know, we kind of popularized it. We we took it on, present, uh, published quite a few studies in quick succession, um, which not only looked at efficiency but also performance. And we looked at performance in a few different ways. Like, you know, if you're doing high intensity exercise, how much longer can you go for? And and found that that was sort of 15 to 20 percent then we did things like time trials and showed that you could go two to three percent faster over a 4k or a 16k cycle time trial now most of the studies have been done um, on cycle ergometers sometimes in the field you know time trials running a bit as well a little bit of arm cranking and kayaking don't think there's much on rowing if anything nothing springs to mind on rowing per se but you know exercise is exercise ultimately and people then did absolutely start to latch on to, well, it, it kind of works in these recreational people. It works in these university team sport athletes, which is fine. You know, um, it seems to work at the sort of high end of competitive uh, club type people, sub-elites. Yeah, they still working there. Now, when you get to the real elite, um, it hasn't translated quite so well. Now, the problem, of course, is those guys are so they've got everything so fine-tuned already that it's pretty difficult to find something that's really going to make you know even a one percent difference a one percent difference at that level as you well know is the difference between an olympic gold and not getting to the olympics right so um and and the other thing is that our ability to measure such small changes is quite small and you get day-to-day -day variability in the way that people perform so when studies have been done looking at very you know, very highly trained endurance athletes with very high VO2 max values, 70 plus, um, then the effect does not seem to be anything like as large. In fact, it's kind of negligible. That said, you know, anecdotally, if you, you know, if you believe in any, in that kind of thing, elite athletes do still think it makes a difference to their performance. Um, and it continues to sell pretty well. So I know, you know, we started to do this work, as I mentioned, in sort of 20, our first paper was in 20, 2009, and a few more thereafter, but you know, you couldn't get beetroot juice around London at the time of the 2012 Olympics, you know, within about a 30 mile radius because everybody was on it. Um, and I, you know, I think with any ergogenic aid, and you mentioned that you're going to do a series of these podcasts talking, you know, looking at, I don't know, creatine and carbohydrate and cap, um, they don't work for everybody in every circumstance. You know, there's a whole bunch of different factors that will determine whether a particular putative ergogenic aid is going to be effective. And that includes the um, training status of the athlete, the type of exercise, the intensity and duration of the exercise, how much you take, when you take, you know, it's a umpteen different things. And you wouldn't be able to, I think, expect 
nitrate or caffeine or anything else to work in everybody in every circumstance and it's the same with us and we're still you know learning where and when beetroot juice can be most effective i think overall there's a consensus that in certain people at certain times it certainly does work and it's one of the, the it's the newest of these ergogenic aids that's kind of come onto the scene but it is um do you, do you think so one of the i suppose the different things about rowing is that there is an enormous skill component within it as an endurance sport. Now, I don't mean to denigrate other sports, cycling, running. You, you can optimise and maximise your kind of your technique in those. But having done all those sports, I think in terms of a racing endurance sport, it's only swimming that has as much of a technical focus and an advancement that you can get with technique and efficiency of technique. Now, you mentioned efficiency as, as something, or, or efficiency of metabolism is that. So yeah. I mean, it, it, are we looking at two different things there? Yeah, this is nothing to do with technique. I mean, I think you have to assume that your technique is not going to be changed by the beetroot juice. So that's right. like a fixed. Um, what the beetroot juice will target is your physiology, is, is your metabolism. And yeah, when I talk about efficiency, I'm talking about the amount of energy it costs you to produce a given amount of work for okay. a given technique. Okay, so, and usually that, you know, that energy cost. So let's say you're cycling on a, um, it's easier for me to, to think about cycling or running, but let's say you're on a, a cycle ergometer and you're going at 100 watts, okay? Now, that should have a particular energy requirement, which is pretty consistent between people. Um, what we're finding is that when people have been fed nitrate or beetroot juice in advance of performing that 100 watts on the cycle ergometer, then the energy cost is actually a little bit lower. And you, you can map the energy cost quite well with just simply with oxygen cost, so obviously, you know, when if you wear a face mask and we're measuring the amount of oxygen that you're breathing in and breathing out, we can calculate how much has been used. And quite a consistent finding um, is that when you know that person's cycling at 100 watts, there's a particular expected oxygen requirement for going at that particular power output. And you find that when they've taken beetroot juice in advance of that, compared to a placebo, that the oxygen cost is maybe three or four percent lower. Um, so they become more efficient. Actually, they're doing the same amount of work. You know, cycling at the same power output, but it's costing them less energy essentially. Right. So, okay. Now, there are sort of a couple of sort of slight, I suppose, challenge questions that I really want to ask. I'm I'm a great believer in the value of a really good placebo effect. Um, I'm, you know, I really like the idea that you can actually do things to fool yourself into going faster. So every one of these experiments you've done, you've got the, you've got the beetroot juice intervention group, the people that you're giving beetroot juice that contains lots of nitrate, which should produce lots of nitric oxide, which should produce the effect. And then you've got another group that's not taking that. And the intervention group is showing an advantage, but part of that will be a placebo effect. Is that correct? No. So we, we account for that. So we don't have two groups for a start. We have one group okay. that do both conditions. So on one occasion, I'll nitrate rich beetroot juice. And on another occasion, I'll take a placebo. Now, the placebo is also beetroot juice. So we, along with the company, there's a company called Beat It, who were part of James White Drinks. Um, so they actually created Beat It as a sort of sub-branch of their regular beetroot juice creation because of the, such a demand from the sporting community. What they were able to do is actually take their regular beetroot juice and filter it. There's an iron exchange resin that they use that removes all of the nitrate. Okay, So I could give you on one occasion a bottle of beetroot juice that has you know full nitrate content and on another occasion i could give you a bottle of beetroot juice that is exactly the same except that it's absent of the nitrate and you don't know the difference between the two and i don't know that so we do proper double blind 
placebo-controlled studies. Um, neither of us know which of those beetroot juices, you know, there'll be a code somewhere which will, you know, crack after the study is complete, but neither of us know which of those was nitrate-containing. So when we're showing effects of nitrate-rich beetroot juice on performance, it's in comparison to a placebo beetroot juice, which has got every other Know, potentially bioactive compounds still in it. It's still, you know, those the juice can it's got polyphenols and antioxidants and betaine and various other things that potentially could have an effect. I mean, it, for us, they really don't. It's, it's only when you've got the nitrate in addition to that stuff that you see any improvement. Because if you compare the placebo to a control, there's really there's really no difference. So it, it's the nitrate-rich beetroot juice that's key. Um, which is why, you know, when you give people nitrate as a drug, sodium nitrate or, or potassium nitrate, and you compare that to a placebo, it's just like you know, a pill or something, compare that to a placebo, you still you do see the, the same effect. Um, I must say, though, that actually what we find is that when you give the same amount of nitrate in beetroot juice compared to just on its own in you know, tablet or pill form, you get a slightly bigger effect. So some of those other components of beetroot juice appear to facilitate either the conversion of nitrate into nitrite and into nitric oxide, or they make the whole thing just more bio, bioactive. Okay. Um, and what about, uh, you know, as, as my father was very keen on saying when my, uh, when his mother-in-law tried to force homeopathic remedies on him, if it has an effect, it has a side effect, are there kind of any sort of famous side effects such as the, the ones with bicarbonate of beetroot juice? No, the, the only side effect, and you mentioned it at the beginning, is that it will turn things red. You know, weird. yeah. So you'll get pink or purple stained um, urine and poo sometimes as well. So that happens. Other than that, you know, I mean, that is, some people have. We haven't seen this in any of our studies at all. There's a bit of a you know myth out there that it might cause you an upset stomach. Um, but people get upset stomachs before they race anyway, and I don't think you can necessarily blame the beetroot juice for it. It might look a bit more explosive or something as a consequence, but there's no evidence. I mean, but that said, you shouldn't be going into you know a major competition not having trialed the use of beetroot juice or anything else in advance. So now there's there's nothing other than that. The only um, other thing to be I think to consider is if you've naturally got. Um, we mentioned the blood pressure effect, right? Now, actually, if you've got if you're hypertensive, then taking beetroot juice, like your guy at the William Harvey Institute would have, would have told you, is actually probably more effective than any medication out there. Certainly, it's in the, over the longer term because you can you don't, you don't get resistant to it. And you continue to respond to nitrate in the um, in the diet. So, if if you're hypertensive, or you're an older person whose blood pressure is likely to continue to get worse as you get a bit older, then taking beetroot juice or increasing the nitrate content of your diet is probably going to be a good thing. If your blood pressure is already normal, like it often is in, in athletes, it really doesn't change very much. So it's rarely a concern. Um, but what you don't want, you know, if your blood pressure is 110 over 70, you probably don't want it to be dropping any any further. That's the, that's the only thing to be concerned by. But as, as I say, the effects in people who already have low or normal blood pressure are extremely small. Okay. So, um, yeah, sorry. So, something I, 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 we should probably mention before we start recording. I'm, I'm a natural science geek. I've, I've got a PhD in molecular genetics. Aaron has a PhD too, but it's in um, English literature. Um, I believe on the kind of the body of literature on how the English define Englishness. Is that is that a fair statement, Aaron? That's Fair to say, um, and now the two science people can gang up on the humanities person and go, well, what the hell are you doing on this podcast? You've contributed well, literally nothing so far. Well, I mean, this is kind of the thing. <laughs> I did actually want to like, try and bring you in because you do come at these things with a very different perspective for me because I, I love all this stuff. This is just like a natural thing for me to do is like go and look up all these papers and kind of meta-analysis and reviews. But Aaron... Did you want us to like kind of come in and sort of like look at kind of like what we've been talking about with your unique perspective on life? Good God, the sarcasm I put up with on this podcast. Yes, I'd like to chat to Andy about the role that uh, beetroot played on the formation of English identity. If you if he's okay with that. <laughs> um, no, I, I do actually have a quick. I, I I have a couple of 
questions and a couple of thoughts on this. And I'd be interested to get, you know, both of your perspectives. Um, Andy, you, you came into um, your field of study and your discipline, uh, as you said at the start, having, having been an athlete, um, being a, I'm guessing a middle distance stroke endurance athlete. Yeah. Um, and like all athletes, the athletic mindset is fundamentally a problem solving mindset. It's how can I get better? How can I go faster? Um, I remember, and I'm pretty sure it was, it was you and I talking about it at Agecroft, Lou, and you mentioning that, that beetroot juice had been found to show these effects probably coming up to kind of testing season. Um, the first, so one of the questions I'd like to ask Andy is coming at this from that athletic background via the PhD process, which is, which is very thorough about academic rigor, about the way that you test things, about the way that you, you frame the parameters of your argument or your debate or your premise or your hypothesis. Were you aware when you started getting interested interested in this and um, you started to do your research, your research, were you aware that that athletes like Loon and I would be meeting for a coffee somewhere in central Manchester and going, there's this great study on beetroot juice and it's shown to do X. So we all instantly, you know, beetroot for me is something that my grandfather grew and we tended to have it in vinegar in summer and it turned you wee red. Um, I remember everyone suddenly got very interested in beetroot juice. There was a study shown that bicarbonate of soda could uh, act as a, a buffer against um, lactic acid development in the blood at, at the time. So you had all of these athletes in the kitchen at Agecroft mixing up spoonfuls of bicarbonate of soda with water and drinking it before a, a 2K test without actually ever having done it before. It probably made us horrendously nauseous at the time. Were you aware that athletes, coaches... Um, would start to take up your work and respond in this way to there's this thing that does this. Um, I, you, you never, you never quite know whether it's going to catch the uh, catch the imagination. We we were excited about our initial findings, you know, because to be honest, when I saw that paper that I keep mentioning, I didn't really believe it. I thought this is I can't be true, you know, because actually changing a person's efficiency is really really difficult. You can look at um, you know, amateur and professional cyclists and, and their efficiency is barely any different right mm. with running you do get improvements in running economy so you know i did got published a case study on paula radcliffe i used to do a lot of work with british distance runners and over the course of about 15 years her running economy got progressively better but that's 15 years mm. so to find something that actually could improve a person's efficiency or economy within a couple of hours of you know necking 90 mils of a fluid <laughs> it's like quite remarkable um and then the fact that we also showed that that translated into improved time to exhaustion during high intensity exercise i mean clearly it was going to interest the athletic community i think the the extent to which it did um perhaps surprised me and the fact that it continues to do so that we're you know doing a, a podcast 15 years later on the same topic is interesting but actually the science has evolved a little bit as well because you know i mentioned already that nitric oxide is um is involved in so many things and you know immediately when you see the efficiency is improved that's costing you less oxygen to give it to a given amount of work you think endurance so a lot of the early studies were on endurance activities you know whether that was long endurance or shorter more entire you know um in the sort of two to ten minute range or whatever the focus was definitely endurance but more recently there's been a transition so we know now for example that in, during multiple sprints or simulated team sport exercise there are positive effects there as well so lots of professional football and rugby teams are, have been using it and then there was a discovery that in fact it can improve um, peak power and the ability to generate maximal force so if you stimulate you know, after you've taken beetroot juice if you electrically stimulate a muscle to produce as much force as it can it's higher so there's something fundamentally happening to muscle contraction as well. And, you know, there's a lot of molecular <laughs> biology to that, Lou, that you might want to you know, kind of comment on in due course. Um, so it, it keeps transitioning, and that's why the kind of interest has kept shifting a little bit. So you know, while we now know that elite endurance athletes might not benefit as much as amateurs do, um, simultaneously we're learning that actually sprint and power and strength athletes might generate some benefit from it as well. So it's one of those rare 
ergogenic aids that can have potential, you know, right across the range of intensity duration continuum. Mm, because beetroot and beetroot juice does work in the way that you've described, but there is a um, we live in the age of the life hack now. So so there's a there's a there's a better, cleaner, more efficient way to get what you want, whether that's better sleep or increased spiritual understanding or increased athletic performance or how to do better at work. You know, it's the subject of, of, you know, you go on YouTube and there's, there's loads of bro science dudes going, you need to take this and eat this and do that and do the other. And a lot of them seem to be based upon, um, you know, the Navy SEALs do it this way. It's like, great. Why don't we follow a program that, that, that has a 98% attrition rate that's going to work for the general population, but beetroot does work. And there is this thing, it's every year, there is a new superfood. So, you know, there's a time when it was chia seeds, then it was kale, then it was flaxseed oil, and then it was... So all of these things are coming out, and a lot of it is driven by the need for manufacturers and people who are selling you stuff to have a new superfood to sell you every 18 months, every year, you know, a new, a new bandwagon to jump on. Things like fish oil have been shown to work. Beetroot juice has been shown to work. So this isn't um, this isn't pop science. This is this is backed up by the research. Yeah, and um, yeah, some some of the stuff that comes along is clearly baloney, and it's people just wanting to sell things. Um, a lot of the you know, interestingly, a lot of the ones that you mentioned there are, possibly do act through the nitric oxide mechanism in some mm -hmm. way. We do know that being able to generate enough of that. Um, especially in older age, is important of finding ways by which, whether those are dietary or whatever, you know, is necessary, or, or some of them work on inflammation. But actually, if you've got a lot of free radicals, um, actually, if you, can, if you can tackle those with antioxidants, then again, you're going to be able to generate more nitric oxide. So I keep coming back to nitric oxide with this. Yeah. One point that I did want to make, because all we've, we've mentioned beetroot juice a lot, is that beetroot and beetroot juice is, is is just a convenient vehicle to get nitrate mm -hmm. into people nitrate is in a lot of other foods as well spinach and kale which is one of the things you mentioned and um rocket and all sorts of green leafy vegetables and a few fruits as well rhubarb and whatnot um and it's not especially high in beetroot it's pretty high but there are things that are that are higher but what's advantageous about beetroot is that you can create this juice from it so you know actually if you wanted to um consume um, an efficacious dose of nitrate you'd have to be eating a lot of salad probably but actually you can get the same amount of nitrate in a relatively small dose of beetroot juice so that's why it's kind of become popularized um, but actually you know in addition it may be convenient to take beetroot juice if you're an athlete or you're just interested in your general cardiovascular and metabolic health but equally you know being conscious of what we eat increasing our consumptions of green leafy vegetables in the mediterranean diet essentially that's going to be important as well so i'm a big believer you know i don't think you should necessarily supplement unless you have to i'm a big believer in natural processes as well yeah and this is kind of a um it's a parenthetical point but it's it's one that's that that's linked i think some people living in the age of the life hack um it's a little bit like people who go on spiritual journeys and talk about surrender and acceptance and as though uh, this tends to come across, and I'm I'm using an analogy here, but this tends to come across as once they reach a place of spiritual enlightenment or once they reach a point of acceptance, they will be at peace with everything and nothing will bother them anymore. Where, where as the reality is that if you surrender to something and accept it in spiritual terms, if something good is happening to you, that's great. It's still going to be good and you're still, got, you're still going to get the same emotional response to it. If something horrible is happening to you, it's still going to be bloody horrible and very, very hard to deal with. So surrender and acceptance in those terms don't mean what people think they do. And when we come to things, when we're talking about superfoods or aids to kind of physiological performance, um, you can take beetroot, you can take superfoods, you can take all of these things. But if you are a even a reasonable club rower working at a reasonable level, it's not like you're taking a Superman pill that's suddenly going to turn you into the next Andy Hodge or the next Kath Granger or what have you. These things are going to have measurable impacts on performance. But if you're already working hard anyway, those impacts on your performance are going to happen within the context of that. And if you are an athlete who's been 
working towards a particular thing, a club athlete who's been working towards Henley or or what have you, you're not suddenly going to go from being a six minutes 30 2K score to a 542 Matt Pinsent 2K score. You might see the performance um, enhancement increase within the bounds of what you're already physiologically capable of, but and it is going to be a measurable in increase, but it's not a Superman pill. It has to happen within, within the context of everything else that you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. You know, and actually this is no substitute or replacement for, for training or for a good diet or for adequate rest or anything else. It's it's one of those icing on the cake things, you know, and you shouldn't mm. expect it to give you more than it's going to be somewhere between zero and two or three percent at the most, I would say. You know, mm. so it's one of those things that's probably worth a try. Yeah. But it's not, you know, and see whether you think it works for you or not, you know, and, and objectively measure your time trial performance if you like. And if you think it's having a, having a benefit, crack on. But <laughs> it's yeah. not going to work for everybody. It, it, as I say, it depends on their physiological makeup, their their training status, the event that they're competing in, and all sorts of other things. Um, you know, but but actually, it's, it's the sort of thing that can be useful, not just pre-competition, but actually to supplement or to to um, to enable training a little bit. We did some longer term training studies and we found that individuals who were taking the nitrate containing beetroot juice rather than the placebo did actually adapt to their training a little bit better as well. So it can be something that just supports the training process as well. And for some people, if you can, you know, if you want to give it a go, it's not going to do you any harm to try. It's mm. the thing with this. That, I mean, that was something that I was really interested in asking because again I, I have quite a limited understanding of, of the mechanism it, it's only been in the last couple of days sort of reading up on this that i've really i've realized that there are all these other effects i just had in my mind it's like it's vasodilation in the muscles more blood goes into the muscles etc um that seemed to me as though it was very much a performance enhancing effect rather than an adaptation supporting effect but you're, you're saying you, you've done studies where, it, uh, well, or someone's done studies. Is, is it your work? Yeah, we've done that. Yeah. We have, and others have too, yeah. The, the, there is actually a long-term benefit from, I mean, I, I'm, part of me says just like, oh, having more beetroot in your diet. But essentially, this is just a question of like having more kind of like, green leafy vegetables containing nitrate in your diet so so it's essentially just like eat your veg almost yeah like the only thing like i mentioned though to get um an appropriate dose you probably need to be eating a fair fair bit of it what you don't you know where beetroot juice i think is particularly handy is on the morning of a race where okay. you don't want to be sitting down and eating a you know 300 gram bowl of salad you know before um, you get to the water right so it's a lot easier and just simply more convenient to take a take a shot or two of beetroot juice, um, but you know I think the reason that it might enable better adaptation in a chronic situation is that if you're getting an acute effect every time, then actually you're performing you know you're, you're actually pushing yourself a little bit harder on each of those occasions. Yeah. So if you're if, you, if you're changing your efficiency a bit, what that will actually mean is that for the same effort you'll be producing a higher power output. So you've got greater intensity and you can probably adapt to that. So, yeah, over, I think our, our studies were, were yeah, fairly short, you know, four or six, six weeks, I think. Um, but we did find that compared to the, um, the placebo group, there was a, a slight but nevertheless important improvement. And, and, and is there, I mean, as, as you said, on, on the morning of the race, you, you don't want to be like digging your way through a, a huge salad. But just in general, if you sort of like ate more pickled beetroot, would that have the same effect? Yeah, it could. The only see, there's a problem with pickled beetroot potentially. So, um, what often happens with the pickled beetroots is that first of all, the beetroots are boiled in water. Um, okay. And, and then often that liquid is is thrown away, and then the beetroots are put in the vinegar or whatever. Yeah. Now the the problem is that nitrate is water soluble. So if you boil the beetroots and throw away the water, you've ended up with a beetroot product that hasn't got any nitrate in it anymore. So don't necessarily assume that taking anything that's you know, fresh beetroot is fine, but you probably need to eat, again, quite a few of them to get the same amount right. as you would in a shot of beetroot juice. Um, but, yeah, so don't don't assume that beetroot supplements necessarily have the active ingredient in them. 
But I think, yeah, you know, generally speaking, where you get the opportunity to um, order a salad with your meal, it's not going to add any extra calories, but you might be getting some some extra benefit through your phytochemicals and nitrate. So if, it, if I was going to sort of like get your, your prescription for, let's say, a, a club rowing athlete going to be competing in races over the summer between let's say seven minutes and 30 seconds to down to maybe like two and a half minutes um, might have anything up to four of those races in a one day period. How, how would, you know, how, how would you say go about sort of engaging with high nitrate products? Let's say, let's say beetroot juice is the, yeah, is the default. Well, the important thing is that you, you take it on on the day of the race. You know, it's no point taking it for a few days and then leaving it for a day or two before the race. So you do have to do something on the race itself, mm. on the day of the race itself. Now, it doesn't mean that you couldn't go for two or three days before and then on the morning of the race, but it is important that you do do something on the morning of the race. Now, first of all, there's two things to look at here. One is dosing and the other is timing. So first of all, you need to make sure you've got an effective dose and that's typically between about six and ten millimoles. So I don't know if you, I mean I've, I've mentioned this Beat It product, which is the one that's most commonly found in the UK. They do a sport shot, which I think has got about six to eight millimoles of nitrate in it. So you're talking, you know, if, if you're a large rower, you might need two of those because you know okay. per kilogram body mass. But for smaller rowers, then one is probably sufficient. But anyway, you're talking about one to two shots of this concentrated beetroot juice to begin with. So that gives you your kind of optimal dose. Taking more than that is no more effective. So don't try and take four, right? Okay. So it's, it's one to two. And you want to be taking that three hours before your your main performance. Or like, I mean, it would be easier. We'll, we'll tackle the fact that you've got multiple races in a single day in a minute. Let's imagine for a, for a sec that it's just one race. Um, you'd want to take the beetroot juice three hours before because... Okay. The nitrate, first of all, gets into your system. Um, then it gets into your saliva. And there's bacteria in your mouth that actually convert nitrate to nitrite. And that's when it becomes... Nitrate itself is not actually important. It's, it's only when it gets activated into nitrite. So your oral microbiome, the bacteria that reside in your oral cavity, are really important for that initial conversion, that bioactivation. Then you're going to be swallowing the nitrite over several hours. You won't be aware of it, but you're producing and swallowing saliva all of the time. The nitrite gets into your bloodstream, and that nitrite can very easily become nitric oxide as and when it's required. But that conversion from so you can get a your, your peak blood nitrate concentration occurs about one to two hours following the ingestion of the beetroot juice, but the peak nitrite concentration occurs a little bit later again two to three hours so mm -hmm. we recommend that you start your race when your blood nitrite levels are at their peak so that means three hours post nitrate ingestion okay um now what you do where you've got four races over you know 12 hours i'm not you know you're going to have to top up at some stage because over the course of the day your nitrate and nitrite levels will fall away and you can use them a bit during the exercise as well. So having some kind of system by which you top up by you know, just having half a half an additional bottle of beetroot juice every three or four hours thereafter for the rest of the day would probably be the right way to do it. Okay. So, right. Um, and w would you would you say that this is something that you use kind of every training day, or I mean? Or, or just like on a heavy week or something like that. I, I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't use it um, every day. Although you know, I'd probably have breaks as well. You might take it for four weeks and have a little break, or yeah, take it during really intensive training periods. Um, you could save it for a you know special occasion because of that. It's not just a, this isn't just placebo. I think I've hopefully convinced you that we're comparing mm. it to a placebo, so we've accounted for the placebo effect. So there is something genuine about it. But nevertheless, doing something special on the occasion of a big competition is a good thing. It's like you know, with with runners, you might have a special pair of trainers that you're going to save for that occasion. Your alpha flies or something. Whereas your your five k parker and you're just going to show up in your Pegasus. You know, it's it's just making sure that you know. 
you don't want to be doing the same thing all of the time, such that it isn't mm. special. I think um, that said, obviously, you, what you wouldn't do is go into a major competition without trialing this thing very carefully in practice beforehand. So, so kind of trial it in the run up to a smaller race or yeah. kind of like time trial testing or stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, because it's it's again, it's coming back to the the idea of kind of athletic mindset and the way that athletes prepare. A lot of it now is in most sports is very very meticulous and very very planned out, and you know things like training cycles um, are carefully worked out over the course of a season, over the course of a particular. Um, phase of uh, adaptation or progression that an athlete is trying to achieve. So turning up on the morning of the race and suddenly going, I must pick up some beetroot on my way to the Olympic start line is, you know, uh, fine. Um, but any sensible athlete at most levels, including below the elite level and going down into, into kind of club is going to go, I'm going to try this i'm going to measure in my training diary what i what i think about it if there's any measurable impacts upon my performance um and the thing is you have you know fairly convincingly laid out that this works this is not a placebo but if you talk to a lot of coaches um physios uh gps in general practice as well as sports scientists you can't discount the idea of placebo the that athletes are as susceptible as the general population to if i do x it will make me go faster and if this all of the evidence shows that uh beetroot products beetroot juice works it's like well i'm going to take this i'm going to go faster you can't discount the impact that that belief has upon performance right for sure there's a belief effect yeah so if um you know, you're not going to take it if you don't believe it's going to work for you. <laughs> so, um, but if you believe it, it does, and you've got some, you've convinced yourself in some way, or you have some evidence in you yourself personally that it's worked, then then why not rely on that to some some extent? Yeah. Okay, so um, there, you know, obviously you've got an athletic background yourself and a competitive background, and you understand this kind of thing of how athletes work. We will just, you know, as Aaron said, we will just try all these odd little tricks. I think pineapple was really popular for a while. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Aaron will tell you that I, I'm a habitual user of caffeine. There's the creatine I've tried, beta alanine I've tried, bicarbonate I've tried. I've, I've done a PV on the rowing machine on, on bicarbonate, but I felt really, really sick um where does kind of in in terms of the benefits and costs of using it where does a high nitrate supplement call it beetroot juice call it whatever you will sit within those kind of legal performance enhancers i think what it's one of them you know so both the ioc and the iaaf had nutrition expert consensus statements published within the last few years and all, you know, so nitrate is now one of the big five or one of the big six. Um, so of all those ones you just mentioned. So there are, there is reasonable evidence, I think, that again, in certain situations, certain conditions, certain individuals, those things can be effective um, and, are, and are safe. So you got your, you mentioned caffeine, creatine, sodium bicarb or, or acid buffers and, and nitrate has joined that list. So those are the ones that, um, that have, uh, have some proper support behind them. Okay. Well, um, interesting. I mean, that, that, that's a, that, I mean, that's kind of about as good as it gets. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, sort of. We, my sort of having. I mean, quite literally tried a lot of these things because, again, it, it's partly the way my my brain's wired. I mean, I and I have tried beetroot juice a lot. One of the things I really liked about beetroot juice is that there were no noticeable side effects. You know, um, beta-alanine will just, can make you feel very, very weird. Um, yeah. Bicarbonate, 
also makes you feel very weird. And obviously there are the various stories, particularly in the rowing community, of explosive diarrhea on the finish line. Um, creatine, I used once very effectively in my life but i would advise people never to touch it because i think it's the reason why i need contact lenses these days um caffeine obviously i use it but would you say that in comparison to those other five things that are on the list this is something that is that has the kind of the lowest side effect profile probably probably does yeah i mean all of the other ones i think are kind of extracted from components of the diet, aren't they, to some extent? So they're all, they all rely ultimately on something natural. But, yeah, I mean, it, it, prob it probably is, yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, and my final question, again, coming back to the, the molecular genetics of things, um, something I read re recently, there is, like, there are very clear demarcated genotypes for response to caffeine. So some people if you supplement them with caffeine, their exercise performance that actually gets worse. Yeah. Um, I think it's the CC genotype is what they call it. Um, anybody out there like that, I am judging you um, as, a, as an inveterate caffeine addict. Um, but it, do, do we see anything like that? Do we see kind of like non-responder populations when we're looking at beetroot? Yeah, for sure. There's definitely um, some non-responders, non and there are people who are super-responders. Okay. Now, whether, the, whether there's a genetic basis to that, I don't know. I mean, as I mentioned, that you, you have this initial conversion of nitrate to nitrite, and then you have potentially a conversion of, of nitrite to, to nitric oxide. So the ability to convert nitrate to nitrite does, does depend on your oral microbiome. Some people may be better at converting a given dose of nitrate into nitrite. That'd be one thing. Um, and what you don't want to be doing actually is using antibacterial mouthwash, mouthwash to obliterate the bacteria in your mouth, because then you could glug as much beetroot juice as you liked, and you'd have absolutely no benefit. And then there, you know, there's going to be another situation where even if you've got two people with the same elevation of their blood nitrite levels, some people still are able to utilize that better. And there's going to be this balance between that nitrate nitrite NO system. And they're in their the, the NOS pathway, which involves the L-arginine that I mentioned earlier. So not everybody will benefit to the same extent for all of the different complexities that are in there. But some will benefit a lot. And I guess you're never going to know whether you're one of them unless you try. So, again, it comes back to, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to write a training manual for the rowing machine at the moment. And, you know, when you just do that and you're reading through loads and loads of just stuff like warm-ups, you know, there is no, as far as I can work out, there is no scientific consensus on how to do a warm-up, um, which which was, like, quite remarkable. But yeah. what it comes down to is warm-ups probably help, but you've got, to, you've got to try a range of different things for yourself yeah. to see yeah. how it works. Yeah, I'll be back on and talk about warm-ups another time because uh, that's something that we've done some some work on because in the running community, you know, the standard is you do 10, about 10 minutes jogging, you do a bit of stretching and you do a few what they call striders, you know, mm -hmm. and then you tow the line and you race. Um, now, actually, everybody knows that when you do an interval training session, let's say you do 10 times 400 metres on a track, yep. the second one actually feels easier and you usually go faster than the first one. Yeah. Yep. That kind of is kind of illogical. And yet... It isn't logical when you actually understand what happens with the physiology, because when you've got some some lactate in the system, um, your ability to to actually accelerate your VO2 kinetics when you start an exercise bout is enhanced. So actually, you just do feel more comfortable. And, and we started to recommend again, this was before the 2012 London Olympics, that rather than just do the bog standard warm up that everybody does and that you've always done, there might actually be some advantage to experimenting with your warm up, possibly including something that seems, you know, that seems too too intense, right? But as long as you've got enough gap between when you've done that bout and when you start the race itself, you will actually benefit from it. So actually, doing let's say you're an 800 meter runner, um, the recommendation would be you do something like 200 meters, pretty flat out but about 20 minutes before you start the 800. Now, that's mm. something that those guys never did in the past, but they all do now. 
as a consequence of some of the data that we produce, which shows that when you do such a thing, you know, your, your ability to switch on and utilize your aerobic system is much enhanced when that gun fires. And as a consequence, if you haven't got that initial lag, you produce more energy over the total distance of the race and you therefore go faster. So that makes so sense. This is kind of like that slightly weird dichotomy about the anaerobic glycolysis system that it produces the inhibitory hydrogen ions, which are the burn and the pain and the horribleness, but it also produces <coughs> the other side of the lactic acid um, molecule, which is the lactate ion, which is actually like one of the principal fuels for aerobic respiration in the mitochondria. So it, what I'm saying is like priming the pump mm. or the aerobic yeah. respiration system yeah. to create yeah. ATP and to power you down the road. Yeah, yeah, we, we call it priming for exactly that reason. So what, what's happened is that because you've done that initial high-intensity bag, you've caused vasodilation in the muscle. So you can get, you know, you, you've got better oxygenated muscles, you can get better blood flow, but you've also activated the the oxidated machinery the enzymes within your muscle cells within your mitochondria to enable them to process that oxygen better as well so just everything is ready to go which if you just do do a jog and a bit of stretching and a couple of striders you're not quite ready to go <laughs> and you feel pretty you can feel pretty like caught out in that first 30 seconds so actually having practiced that before you actually start the race is, is important but just making sure that you get those benefits without having any kind of over um any fatigue effect that's still hanging over you so that's why getting the duration of or the recovery period between that initial bout and the start of your race is important and we think that about 20 minutes 15 to 20 minutes is about right if you did the flat out sprint and then tried to do the race you know a minute or two later you'd have some of the positives but they'd be outweighed by some of the negatives so you've just got to find the right optimal balance between the intensity of the priming bout, duration of the priming bout, and the duration of the intervening recovery period. Right. So, I mean, we, we got completely off, off the beetroot <laughs> subject here, but this is like absolutely fascinating. So, you, you, you're recommending it's like a 30 second kind of pretty close to all out effort. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that 30 seconds for an 800 meter race, which is going to be about a minute and 42 minutes long? Or is that just 30 seconds for anything because you, you just need to get the priming effect? Yeah, I think you can choose whatever you like. It has to be, you know, what we say above critical power. And you've got to generate right. a, a sufficient amount of lactic acidosis. And you might as well do it with a 30-second near all-out sprint. We've tried other other things as well you can do several minutes of slightly lower intensity exercise if you prefer it doesn't really matter too much as long as you do something that's priming um but yeah 30 second you know almost sprint is probably as good as anything i would say the um i'm gonna say something else about that what was it um oh yeah i mean you wouldn't do this for say a marathon right you know it, it has to be events which probably take you less than about 15 minutes so if you're a, if you're an 800 meter runner, 1500, 3k, 5k, fine. If you're 10k half marathon, marathon, there's there's not really any need because that initial oxygen deficit makes up a relatively small, you know, overall portion of that event. The longer you go, so and and then you just want to avoid any of the potential negatives that come from like the the fatigue or the kind of increase or decrease pH that might be associated with doing a 30 second all out effort. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Plus the sprint is going to use some of your glycogen up and you want to, for things like the marathon, you need to kind of retain as much of that as you can. Yeah. You're not going to hit the wall late on. Right. I so, think that makes so, sense. Thank you for that. That was absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't have to come back on now. You've explained the warm-up. We can, we can get you back on to talk about uh, cool-downs and how Dennis was lying to us about flushing lactic acid out of the oh, system. Yeah. He just wanted us to do more miles. They literally do nothing. Cool-downs do nothing. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. I've I, And this is anecdotal, so I haven't tested this in the way that you have. But um, I found that a thorough warm-up that involves some kind of explosive effort or some kind of something close to race pace 
I don't know whether it's psychological or what, but there's obviously a physiological component which you've just described. But I always feel better than if I've just done like a gentle paddle and then turn around and you suddenly have to lash back down the course. Um, so there's definitely that. The thing that I wanted to ask about is you mentioned about um, some of your work being picked up before 2012 and things like that. Um, are you reaching out to people like Team GB or are interested coaches, physiologists, um, what have you working in programs, reading your work and reaching out to you to um, discuss it more thoroughly and how it might apply to their programs? Yeah, I have done some of that. I think, as I mentioned, I was um, involved as you know, lead physiologist to UK Athletics for quite a long period. Mm. Um, and now I'm associated with England Athletics as well. So they get me involved in a lot of stuff. I mean, and, and I, that incorporates the Beatrice Juice story sometimes, but it, it's about training and testing mm. and endurance generally, you know, all of that stuff, all of the limitations to performance um, that, that I contribute to. But I also do a lot of the actual hands-on testing with runners as well and advise their, the, you know, the athletes and the coaches on, on how they might be able to improve. Um, and I was also, I was what they call me, endurance special advisor to the English Institute of Sport for a, a few years as well. So I've spoken to most of the performance directors and lead coaches at different times. Well, of course, there's always a bit of a churn, isn't there, in these, these things. So you, mm. you've got to keep re-messaging it. And of course, the science keeps changing as well. So you have to kind of update um, what you're recommending or what the, what the basis for your, uh, for your suggestions are. Right. Um... So just like one final question before we wrap up. So first of all, this, can I just point out, Loon? Can I just yeah. point out, Loon? This is now our fifth, just one final question, but carry on. Okay. Um, is, is there anything at all that you sort of like to publicise in terms of recent work you've published, um, people that you're working with or... You, you'd want to work with you. I, I don't know. Do you have any open postdoc positions in your lab that you're advertising for? Uh, well, no, we, I mean, we don't have anything at the moment, but people who are interested in coming to work uh, with us on any of the things we discussed today, um, any positions I do have, I would tend to advertise via Twitter, now known as X. And my handle on there is at Andy Beetroot, funny enough. So, um, you know, just kind of, I guess, track whatever I post on there. Um, in terms of what we're doing, we are we obviously continuing with the nitrate story. And I've gone from measuring things in the blood, which is always a little bit of a, you know, a proxy. We, we're now taking muscle biopsies and measuring nitrates and nitrite levels in skeletal muscle. So, you know, that's that's quite interesting because there are, you know, um, we're, we're getting a better understanding of exactly what has changed, which correlates with the change in performance. So that's that's quite exciting. And then just on the physiology side of things and endurance, um, you know, everybody knows about VO2 max and lactate threshold and economy or efficiency. But there's been a sort of assumption that if you've got good numbers for those things on the start line, then that's all, you know, people with the person with the best numbers on the start line will probably be the one that wins. And that works quite well, um, but not entirely satisfactorily. And, and so we're doing some work now on a concept called resilience or some other people call it durability, which is that, you know, those variables that you have on the start line, you might have a VO2 max of 80 when the gun fires, you might have a running economy of 180 mils per kilogram per kilometer, but they're not going to be the same numbers after 20 miles of a marathon. Mm. Um, and the extent to which these things deteriorate, the, the level of fatigue resistance that people have is very, very different. So we've been kind of pushing this as a fourth parameter or fourth component. So, I mean, I, I worked a lot with, um, with, with Nike on the Breaking 2 Marathon project. So I'm the one person in the world that's, that's tested Elliot Kipchoge, for example. Um, and if you look at some of his performances, he seems to be particularly resilient. Paula Radcliffe was another one, you know, where if I pulled them out of a marathon at 20 miles and put them on a treadmill, I think their measurements wouldn't have changed very much from mile one. And yet other people fatigue massively. So there's this whole new area, this this fourth dimension, this time element of fatigue resistance that I think is going to be the new frontier in endurance physiology. So that's something that we, I think, we're the first to identify or, or to repopularize at least and, and is something that is a big focus for us at the moment. Right. So, and genuinely, last question. <laughs> if there was one thing other than kind of like the nitrate or the warm-ups that we've covered... Um, there was one piece of advice you could offer to 
rowing athletes in the British club system, what do you think it would be? Um, one word, consistency. There we go. Um, if you want a second word, patience, you know, but it's not about boom and bust um, and, you know, jumping on the next big thing, training really hard, getting injured. It's all about doing the same thing day in, day out, week after week, being in it for the long term, the long haul. I mentioned Paula Radcliffe in 15 years. Elliot Kipchoge is the same. You know, sometimes it takes 15 or 20 years until you achieve your peak performance. And you're not going to do that if you train too hard too, you know, all of the time and end up with all these breaks in your training. Just doing something every day is the key thing. Thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been the Broken Laws podcast with uh, Professor Andy Jones. Um, Andy, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Good. Glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, I've got to go to another meeting there. And my dog interrupted. I don't know if you saw that. But... We noticed, yeah, but, yes. You know, that it, it, it's, it, it all adds to the authenticity. Yeah. It, 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 it humanised you in, in my eyes as, as a humanities <laughs> grad. He's got a dog. He can't be all bad. He's not a bad Golden, scientist. Golden doodle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, that, right, that was fun. That was great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We really appreciate it. When does it come out? Do you, you want to, if you, let, if you let me know when it's out, I can... Uh... I think I, I think that I think that was so clean and won't take it won't take any editing. Um, you know, I'm sure that you, you've given a lot of these answers before. Uh, so basically, as soon as Lewin can send me the the file, I would like to put this out as soon as Lewin. Yeah. So well, I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll see. It'll be sort of like somewhere between now and Monday ish. All right. Quite quick. Yeah. Yeah. If that's if that's okay, and we and we'll link you in, and you can you can flag it up. But that's. Um, Fantastic, and the warm-up thing was was really was really thought-provoking. It, it ties in with, with a lot of what I'd already kind of worked out for myself and what worked best for me. Good, yeah, yeah. excellent. Okay, guys, good to meet you. Thanks you for the invitation. Too. Cheers, Andy. Thank you. Bye then. Bye then.